Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the business mindsets of leaders and brands and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business mind healthy. To continue the conversation, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business, where we are very time conscious. And because I'm so time conscious, I thought, hmm, who could our next guest be? She's the founder and CEO of Time Stylers. She's a speaker. She's a media commentator. She was Koshy's business builder, time management expert, and she's a best-selling author of three business books, all about time. She's a great friend of the show. Welcome back, Kate Christie. Thank you for having me, Jackie. I love coming on your show. See, well, I love having you. So there, it's a win-win. <laughs> now, <laughs> I must... won before we even started. I know. I oh, know. I love that. Now, I must admit, when I introduced you, and it was a time management expert, which was the technical term, you've actually moved on from that. And I like the fact that you're now calling yourself a time investment expert. Now, tell me why the move from management to investment. Well, look, I, I guess I played it safe for a little while because time management is a concept that everyone understands and is familiar with. But the more work I did in this space and the more clients I worked with, it really started to rankle with me in terms of it's such a negative term and it, it people sort of um, bash themselves up and say, oh, you know, my time management is terrible. And, and I, I was really wanting to change mindsets for people to understand that time is not something you need to manage. Time is something that you need to invest and you should be investing your time the way you invest your money with the greatest possible um, intent for the greatest possible return. You know, we just don't go and, and throw, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars away. So we invest that money and let's start thinking about our time the same way. Yeah, I, look, I totally agree. I thought it was really clever and it got me thinking about terms like the time economy and, and actually using the word time as you would cash or, or anything that's, that's financial Absolutely. Uh, and actually giving it the same level because, you know, some of those sayings that we hear, uh, you know, about uh, time is money and things like that, so it's there. So it's just bringing it back to the forefront of an awareness of how, how important time is because it's one thing that you don't get back. That's right. It's, it's just about being making very conscious decisions and very conscious choices around where you invest the time you have. You know, we all have the same amount of hours. Um, however, those who invest wisely and make deliberate choices will do better. And it's very easy to shift your consciousness in that way. So I think just um, by moving away from the term time management and really coining it as time investment, I think that just helps people immediately 
start thinking about their time a little bit differently. Yeah, and being in more and being responsible for their time. And I don't know about you, you probably get this because everyone wants to talk to you about time. But I, I hear it a lot, people saying, oh, they wasted my time and I went and met with them, they're tyre kickers and they're this. And I'm saying, hang on, you can't blame them for wasting your time. You've got to take responsibility of that. So you've A, got to increase your awareness of it, B, put some strategies in place to, to shut it down very quickly and maybe some scripts around, I'm out of here or something but you've got to be responsible for your time is that something that you come across yes and and it's very much about setting boundaries and understanding what you're going to say yes to what you're going to say no to and having very very clear boundaries I think in small business we're often approached and someone will say can I have five minutes of your time or can you talk me through this or you're very good at this can I have your time and you need to consider those requests carefully. Um, it's around thinking to yourself, well, is this a genuine win-win? Is this something I really want to do? Because every time you say yes to those sorts of requests, basically you're saying no to yourself or something that you want to do. So you have to be really clear that those sorts of time investments are something that you want to do. So, you know, I, I, I really dislike those those terms around, you know, killing time or wasting time or mm. stealing my time or losing time. You, you are in control. You are in the driver's seat. This is your life. You really need to take control of the agenda. I like it. I like it. Now, this new book, Smart Time Investment for Business, 128 ways the best in business use their time. Uh, my curious mind, Kate Christie, had to ask, well, how come 128? <laughs> well, look, you know what? I basically kept writing whilst I, I kept thinking of lots and lots of little strategies. And since I went to print, I've been thinking of more. So we know we may have you know, version two and version three. But I, I just wanted to give my readers in the business, in the small business and medium enterprise space, as much of my IP as I could possibly give. So I didn't want to stop without and, and leave anything on the table. I really wanted my readers to walk away with as many possible strategies as they could have. Yeah, okay, that's that's a good one. Now, out of the 128, what's your favourite? Oh, look, one of the latter ones, I think it's about strategy 120 off the top of my head. I should have my book in front of no, me. That's right. I've, I've got it here. I've got it here. Okay. So it's t- the strategy me. on multitasking. Yeah, it's 120. And trust what oh, you know. There you go. Trust there what you, you know. That just shows how many times I've proofread that book. Um, and the, the strategy basically is that, you know, you need to stop multitasking. And I, I mean in a work business sense. Um, multitasking is basically the... Uh, decision to try and do more than one thing at a time with the intention that you're going to actually get more done. And it's the complete and utter reverse of that. When we multitask, which can be as simple as sitting at your computer doing some work and the emails are flashing in the corner, or it could be talking to a customer while the phone's vibrating in your pocket, or it could be out and about uh, driving your car to your next job and the phone's going incessantly or you're trying to have a telephone call whilst you're driving. All of those are examples of multitasking. And when we multitask, our productivity actually goes down by 40%. Mm. Now, that's a killer. That's 10 IQ points. So you've lost even before you've started. 
So that's probably one of my most favourite uh, strategies. And I think it's very impactful and very it's an easy one for people to actually understand and go away and implement and just to say, look, I'm just going to batch my time. I'm going to focus on this one task for the next 30 minutes without distraction. And it is amazing how much you actually get done. Yeah, it sure, sure does. Uh, does it annoy you as much as it annoys me when I see jobs being advertised and they list as a requirement that you must be able to multitask? Look, I think it's hilarious, yeah. and I and I often I often think, gosh, if I was if I if it wasn't for the fact that I was running my own business, I'd apply for that job, and on top of my CV, I'd have in bold, big capital letters, "I do not multitask," um, because multitasking does not work. I think from the home front, you know, if you can throw on the spaghetti bolognese whilst you're vacuuming the floor and feeding the pets and throwing the kids in the bath and um, ordering, you know, next week's online shopping, then knock yourself out because they're all kind of low, um, low value tasks from the perspective of they're important things, but they don't require your best brain. That's uh, right, so from yeah. a multitasking perspective, you know, at home, absolutely. But tasks which require your best brain, you just cannot multitask them. No, exactly. Now, my favourite one, because mm. I thought if I ask you for your favourite, it's only fair that I thought you might ask me for mine. And I thought, well, you know what? I need to pick one because 128. Number five. Now, can you remember off the top of your head? I'm teasing Number you now. Number five. Can I'm you remember? thinking that somewhere <laughs> around setting audacious goals. But oh, I'm close, not close. Don't be busy. Don't be busy. Don't be busy. Now, I've decided every year I have a bit of a a mantra or, you know, what's my word of the year or what's my uh, term that I'm going to use for this year. So Mm, this year, do do you? Okay, great. It's good. It just sort of just shifts my focus or sharpens my focus. And mine was don't be busy because everyone always says to me, oh, you're so busy. You're always so busy. And I thought to myself, no, I'm going to say I'm not busy. And it's it's been hilarious, the response. People go, oh, Jackie, thanks so much for taking the call. I know how busy you are. I go, no, I'm not busy. And they go, yeah, must no, I'm really not busy. And their reaction's been really funny. Uh, and it's them wanting to get off the phone but saying, I know you're busy, I'll let you go. No, no, I've got as much time as you need. So obviously you need to go. <laughs> well, it totally changes the conversation, doesn't yeah, it? And it I does. say this, you know, that often when you meet someone, it's like, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm so busy. Oh, my God, I'm so busy too. And then you have this really negative conversation about how busy you are. And it seems to have acquired a bit of a social status. And it's not a badge of honour. So no. when people ask you how you are, say, I'm great, I'm terrific, I'm productive, I'm getting through heat. Um, because it, it, it does change the conversation. Yeah, and it also made me realise uh, that I was missing opportunities because people said, oh, I didn't bother you with that because I know how busy you are. I didn't think you'd have that it would interest you or that you'd have time for it. And I thought to myself, well, let me make that choice, not you. Yeah, what a shame. What, what a, a shame. shame. And there was some really good stuff that I was missing out on it. I went, right, <laughs> that's it. I am not busy. I am not busy. I've got time for everything. But that then says to me, which has been a really good mindset shift for me to say, I'm getting better at saying no to things. So, no, I'm not busy. Would you want to – no, but I don't want to do that or I choose not to do that. I'm not busy. I've got time to do it, but I'm choosing not to do it. So, you actually then get better saying no, but you're right. The minute you say busy, you may as well have, I'm so unproductive and stupid on your forehead, I think. Absolutely, and no one says that. 
<laughs> How are you? Oh, I'm so unproductive. Yeah, yeah. That's the last thing that your listeners are going to be saying to their clients. So it's just, again, it's just a simple, little simple strategy, but just shifting the dialogue. Yeah, I know. And I used to say I'm busy, but I'm good busy. But I'm going, no, I'm not even going to go there now. So number five, well done. That's really great. Now, the other bit about your book that I really enjoyed was the stories. and the te- I always love a story. But the testimonials in your book. Now, when you went to the UK last year, I know you were a keynote in London, uh, which is <laughs> very exciting. And I know that you hooked up with some really cool business people. And one in particular that I, I sort of got attracted to in the book. You know how when you read things, you think, oh, I really like to actually meet this person was the Starling Bank lady Anne Bowden yes tell me about her oh look she was brilliant look what I what I did was knowing that I was going to London I basically reached out to a whole suite of incredible business owners who are household names and just said look I'm coming I'd love to interview you for a book and I, I, about one in three came back and said, yeah, I'd love to be interviewed, which I just thought terrific. And she was, was one. She uh, started a bank, as and, you do. Yeah, as you do. Uh, wow. So she was a, a career banker. She felt the banking was broken. She wanted to fix it. She wanted a new solution. She wanted to start from scratch, and she wanted to do it. So she did it. And she's delivered um, England's only on, fully online bank, I went to their offices in London, um, incredible open space. She is a dynamic woman, a very uh, agile, young, engaged team. Um, they have a, a huge demographic of people using the portal. They sort of went into it thinking that there was going to be a specific demographic, but no. Um, and, they've, and they've basically created a, a bank and she funded it for a number of, you know, two years on her own and then she went knocking on doors and got investment and um, and she, she's absolutely inspiring. And she has, uh, she, she's not, she doesn't have children. She's in her 50s and, and her business is her life. But she's, you know, unashamed about that in terms of, you know, this is the life I love. And, and yet having said that, it wasn't until she was in her 40s or late 40s that she felt... It was appropriate for her to get a cleaner, for example, because she sort of had been brought up that, you know, you, you, you have to clean your own home. And here she was, this phenomenally successful woman, running and owning a bank, and yet she was still doing all of the, the sort of the household chores. And, and I just had a wonderful conversation with her around that concept of giving yourself permission to outsource giving yourself permission to pay for people to help you so that you can focus on the things you love. And, um, you know, she was absolutely terrific. Oh, look, that was certainly inspiring. Uh, Kate Christie, I value your time. Thank you very much. You've been very generous with it. Your new book, Smart Time, Smart Time Investment for Business, 128 Ways the best in business use their time and certainly the best in business. So congratulations. I like the book. I like its little workbook that you've got under each tip, write down three ways you could use this strategy. Uh, And that's sort of really, really helpful with that. So congratulations and thanks as always for your time. What's uh, what's on for you this year? You're still doing some lots of traveling? Yes, I've got a lot of travel on this year. I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements across various sort of industry events and uh, working with uh, small business 
um, small to medium enterprise, big business. So lots, lots on the agenda this year, but I am not busy. I am fantastic. <laughs> You're highly productive and efficient. <laughs> I love Thank it. you for having me. Thank you for making the time. Really appreciate it. Kate, Christy, I look forward to our next encounter. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is one of a friend, good friend of the program, actually. He is a trends expert, business strategist, speaker, author, and uh, I'm sure he walks around with some sort of crystal ball because he always knows what's happening next. Uh, welcome back to the show, Michael McQueen. Thank you so much. Good to have you here now. I have to also say that you have written, is it eight books over the last 12 years? Yeah, it's been a busy few years. Again, book number eight landed just a couple of months ago. So, yes, it's um, kind of a frenetic pace, but gosh, it's interesting because, I mean, when you're in this space of trying to keep on top of what's changing, you write a book and by the time it comes out, it's out of date. So there's, you're always kept on your toes, but it's good fun. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Is it because of the industry you're in you feel the pressure to always be writing a book a year or is that is that self-imposed pressure? Well, it's a good question. So I think a lot of it is self-imposed. And typically, I'm just a curious person. And most of the books that I write will come out of curiosity. I'll you know, I'll be working in an area doing some research, and that'll unearth something else I hadn't considered, hadn't come across before. And I think, well, there's something else here, and I'll start to dig around. And so the book that came out in January this year was for educators. And that really came about because I'd written a book the year before for businesses about what the future was going to hold and disruption and AI and where the jobs are going to be and all that sort of stuff. And then teachers I was speaking with said, actually, you know what, we need this stuff for getting our students ready for the future. That started that whole process. So yeah, every book tends to be the result of a, a chance conversation or something I'm reading. I think there's something in this I need to explore more. And then I just, I just do. Yeah, well, as a marketer myself, segmentation's key. So I was actually impressed that you've written one for teachers. And I'm going to predict that I think that's going to be the future of books that certain industries or certain segments are going to be wanting specific to them, not so yeah. generalist. But anyway, that's yep. that's that's not my area. It's just I'm putting it out there. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what heart. happens. <laughs> uh, now, this next book that you're doing, The Case for Character, or have you released that? It has been released. It has been released, yeah. So it hit doors sort of, um, June, July um, this year, and it's gone great guns, which is exciting because, you know, you release a book in some books, they really well straight out of the gate. Other ones take a little while to sort of find the market. This one's just hit and gone just um, spectacularly well in the first couple of months. In fact, we just had to do a, re- a rerun of the print. So it's gone really well. And it's interesting because it, it definitely came out of one of those tense conversations. And I think it's something that resonates with where a lot of businesses are at right, right now. Right now, it's just the thing to focus on trust. I'm building trust. Yes. If you lose trust with your marketplace, how do you get it back? And it's obviously such a timely theme at the moment. Yeah, now that is what I want to talk about. Firstly, I wanted to say I love the term character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has such depth and richness and it's about behaviour and about the power of emotion and all that stuff that mm-hmm. from a behavioural perspective I think business people need to be start looking at that. Uh, so I was really keen on that. But as a, as a brand nerd myself, uh, the corporate character side of it was appealing. But then I then went trust is always an area that I'm particularly fascinated with. So let's just have a chat about that for a minute. What's your definition of trust, Michael? Well, I think trust in many ways is the fact that you're willing to 
make yourself vulnerable to someone else because you are confident they have your best interests at heart. And that's typically trust is demonstrated over time. People do what they promise they'll do. They do what you expect them to do. Um, but a lot of it is about personal behaviour, consistency of a customer experience in a business um, context, but relationship as well. I think relationship and authenticity are a big way that we, we figure out who is trustworthy and who's not. Mm. And so... How does a entrepreneur, for instance, or a startup, what should they be doing to invest in building that trust? Well, the first part is is just being real. And I think for a lot of businesses, it's a challenge because we tend to feel like we've got to almost be walking press releases. Mm. And, you know, really, in reality, letting letting the real life show through. I mean, I see around right now, back at the airport, you're hearing a plane rev in the background. And the reality is that's an awkward thing when doing a radio interview, but that's life. That's what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And in, in every one of our days, stuff's going on, and the more you can call it out, be real about it, the good stuff and the bad stuff, in many cases it's the, the challenges you're having, the more real you can be with your marketplace. And you see brands that do this really well, they're just uh, a little bit irreverent, don't take themselves too seriously. That's when we build trust because it feels like we're dealing with a human. We feel like we're dealing with people who we can relate to. So authenticity is a big part of it, but beyond that, the customer experience, particularly for startup businesses, is vital. Um, the question I often ask clients is: you know, Is the customer experience you're offering consistent? You know, or do they? You know, one day they'll walk in or deal with you, or with one staff member it's great, with the next staff member it's not. It's, when there's inconsistency, that's when trust is eroded. So I think consistency and reliability, predictability of service is so important. Yeah. So why is the marketplace today so much more sceptical than they used to be? I think we've got reason to be, firstly. I mean, the fact is we've had our trust abused by institutions now. I mean, left, right and centre, and the Banking Royal Commission has done nothing for that, but it's not just been the banking sector. It's so many industries that, in reality, haven't done what they promised to do or somewhere along the way lost sight of the reason they exist, which is to serve their customers, and instead started focusing on shareholder return. And so I think one of the reasons is because we, we have a lot to be wary about when it comes to dealing with businesses. But beyond that, I think the other challenge is that we know so much more than we ever did. Now, we're, we're in something I often refer to as the age of transparency, where people are exposed to so much more information than ever, and therefore, I think expect a whole lot more of institutions than we ever did in the past. Mm. Yeah. So how important is values? So understanding your values and aligning them <laughs> yeah. with, with your brand. But is it just the company values or personal values? Like what's the sort of um, line in the sand? I think it's going to be a bit of both. But I think the corporate values, for most brands, that's, that's where you've got to start. And we've had, you know, values discussions over the years in businesses and we've got them printed on the wall and, the, you know, in the company annual report. But the question is, are you living your values out and do the values you've got as an organisation inform your culture? And it's amazing how often a business will say that it values one thing, but then it lives out something very, very different. The problem with that externally, of course, is that your customers lose trust, but internally, my goodness, it is dangerous. When you've got an organisation that says we really value X, Y and Z, and then what you incentivise in your staff is different, or what you encourage staff to do is different, and you almost are asking staff to compromise, that, that erodes culture and morale so quickly. Uh, so I think from internal and external perspective, knowing your values and having them inform your culture is so important. I love, I love the insight from David Morrison. I'm Lieutenant General David Morrison years ago when he investigated bullying and harassment in the military. He, at the end of the inquiry, said, you know, that the 
standard that you walk past is the standard you accept. Mm. And any organisation, when you when you know what your values are, you then know what to call out when you see it, something that doesn't match your values. That's so important. Yeah. Now, what uh, philosophy or pearl of wisdom do really resonates with you, Michael, on in in your day to day? So you you mentioned that that quote particularly on that, but the mm-hmm. case of character. But what is, is is there something that someone said to you once, or something that you've read from a famous quote that yeah. that constantly inspires you? I think something that has stuck with me always was something a mentor told me years ago, which is that um, public victories are always preceded by private ones. You know, whenever you see someone win an award or have some degree of fame, what you're not seeing are the tens of thousands of, of moments where they've made a good choice, often where they've stuck to their values, even when it was unpopular or difficult, um, you know, been a bit unwilling to compromise. I think that's something that personally I've found really helpful and I've seen really helpful for many of my clients as a philosophy as well. Yeah, and you obviously enjoy speaking. You do a lot of um, pu- public speaking. Uh, and you're speaking at the Byte Conference, which is in 14th of May 2020, so a little while away. So we're excited to have you as part of that. How do you keep energised to speak in front of so many people around the world? I think the thing I love most is just seeing the difference it makes. You know, when, you see, when you're working with an audience with a client and suddenly something that seems complex or overwhelming seems simple and actionable, I love that moment. I love it when you can present something that make, that unlocks people's thinking in a very empowering way. And so, you know, I'd, I'd much rather an audience leave a presentation of mine feeling, I guess, inspired or empowered rather than impressed with me and with my content. And so I, I think that's what I find most um, rewarding and most valuable about the work I get to do. Mm. And so what advice, just to finish off, what advice would you give, just a little taste test for Byte in uh, 14th of May 2020, what advice would you give a small business entrepreneur or startup into future-proof their business? Well, I think if you look at this whole thing of trust, which is what we'll focus on the most, the reality is in the years ahead, I think customers will place a higher value on trust than they will on things like price, your promise, or even the, the experience that you offer. And I, I think for all of us, Trust is going to be one of the most important commodities. We have this trust crisis that's often described, and it's not just for big businesses and banks or politicians. This is for every business. You know, we're now, we're now dealing with an environment where people almost, they don't expect the worst, but when, when businesses fail to live up to what they promise, people go, well, so yeah, you, none of you ought to be trusted. And so we're in that environment where people are more sceptical, more cynical than ever. Therefore, this creates a massive opportunity for those who know how to build trust and then keep it. And that's what we'll focus on. Okay, can't wait. I'm very excited. Have a safe journey wherever you're heading now. You're always <laughs> flitting around the world, but you'll be coming to the second best city in the world, being Melbourne, because I know that you think Sydney's the best, but you know that you and I have disagreed in the past on that. So we'll just have to agree to disagree. I look forward to welcoming you to Melbourne on the 14th of May. I really enjoy trends expert Michael McQueen. Thank you for your rich insights today. It's been always a delight. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. We'll be right back after this short. You're listening to Jackie Mitchell on RPPFM, Taking Care of Business. Yvette Cordy, welcome to Taking Care of Business. Thank you for having me. Good to have you in the studio. And you actually did change my thinking about problem solving and problem finding now is really the the key. But I have to ask you, why did you choose curiosity as your thing? So 
I have always been curious and curiosity led me to become a psychologist and understand people more deeply. And I've been doing deep curiosity work really for the last 20 years. So I've been traveling the world, spending time um, understanding people in their homes, following them around to, to work out why they're doing what they're doing. So for me, it's been part of the work that I've been doing. And the book really was a crystallization of all of that knowledge. Right. And so as you were a kid, did people used to describe you as curious? Like Curious George? Yes. So my dad actually used to say to me when I was a kid, I used to say, why, why, why? And he said, Yvette, why is a crooked letter? Did he <laughs> he really? just got so frustrated yeah. with all my questions. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that, that's actually good that you've actually gone through that path. Now, in your journey, and I did notice that you started off pretty much as an elite athlete. So you used to train with Kathy Freeman and you were a hurdler. I did. I did. I um, was a 400-meter hurdler, and um, I kind of talk about my athletics as my first career, really. Mm. So um, was very passionate about sport and, you know, would spend, when I was in the, the, the peak of it, I guess, was spending up to sort of six hours a day doing hurdles technique, track work, gym work, stretching, circuit work, um, and, uh, you know, my kind of, I guess, best outcome was I won the... Australian 400-meter championships in 1997. So uh, quite a long time ago now. It doesn't now. matter when the runs are on the board. I know that's that's really exciting, and I know that you've got Kathy Freeman. Uh, you trained with her, and I'm assuming that you're still mates because you've got her in your book. So Kathy obviously went on to incredible things, but it, it got me thinking again. My curious nature got me thinking: What did sport teach you? So we, when you were doing athletics, were you training to be a psychologist or was that after you finished your athletics career? Both of those were happening at the same time. So I was, because I did three degrees, so I'd done an undergraduate in psychology and psychophysiology, a graduate diploma in applied psychology and a master's in organisational psychology. So that took a long time mm. and I was training whilst I was As doing well. all of that. Yes. So no, no life, that was it. <laughs> tried to fit that in around as well. Yeah, um, incredible. So, yeah, so for me, I, you know, I wanted to get, for me, it was about being the best person that I possibly could be. And I built a system around me. I had a wonderful coach, Peter Fortune, and we had a great um, group of people that we were training with. Um, I had a sports psychologist that I worked very closely with, um, a nutritionist, a physio. I had a, a hurdle coach. Like there was, it was really building a, a, a team around me so that I could get the best possible result that I could get. And I'm, I'm happy with what I achieved. I never won a gold medal, but I feel like I really got the most out of my ability. Right. And that's, that's all you can do. It's that feeling of doing your best. So let's translate that into business. So what can business people learn from sport? Like what did you take from your experience in sport now into business? Yeah. So I think one of those is about goal setting. So um, goal setting, what's right for me and what can I work towards and having clear a clear pathway towards that. Um, I think the other thing is about building a team around you, recognising that you can't do it all yourself and that you're going to get the best out of your performance by having people around you that are going to help you to improve different aspects of what you do. Yeah, I think that's a real disconnect with business. That's certainly been my experience is that business owners, you know, they, uh, the, the thought of them having a business coach, they almost get to a point of no return to go, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I need help. 
rather than go, well, let's be a bit more proactive rather than reactive and go, okay, you're running a business. So whether you're running your own business or an entrepreneur or working in a business organisation but you're reasonably ambitious uh, and you're wanting to improve, then why don't you have your team around you? It's almost embarrassed to say, oh, I need a mentor or a business coach or I need a, you know, a psychologist or whatever or mm. a nutritionist, whatever it is, to help you achieve your best in business. Where does that disconnect come from, do you think? Yeah, so in, in my book, I've got six mindsets and one of those mindsets is the novice. Mm. And the novice, for us to be curious, for us to grow, for us to learn, for us to create space for new learning, we need to be able to have a novice mindset. And in organisations, we very quickly default to be the expert. And the more senior we get within organisations, the more we are expected to be the expert. Mm. And to be the novice brings vulnerability, to be the novice. And so many people aren't prepared to say, hey, I might not know it all. Um, I'm, I'm not willing to get help. And so that's I guess, um, stifles curiosity. Yeah, it's sort of perceived as a weakness in a way, which is so the opposite, isn't it? Yes. But I love the novice out of the book that I read and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing and writing it. I thought it was a great book. But one of the key themes was that. I'm so glad you mentioned the novice because I really picked up on that and it really resonated with me. And that's why I love this radio show because I love being an eavesdropper and I love picking business brains uh, but saying that I, I was thinking about it, I go yeah but I still refer to myself as an expert and maybe I should change change my thinking on that because I think it's a really really good point and there's a lovely story in the book if you could share it I'm, hopefully you can remember it if not I can but it was about there was this uh, person at a conference and they sat next to someone and was and the, this person asked them you know what do you do so do you want to continue continue that story um do you remember it? Do you remember it? Yeah, so, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, so, so they, they're at a conference, they're sitting next to this person, and this, this person said, oh, you know, what do you do? And this expert said, well, I do this, I do that, and I'm running this business, and I'm doing this, da, 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 and just did this whole sort of sales pitch, didn't ask any questions or whatever, and this other person said to them, oh, that's really interesting, kept asking questions, started taking notes. So the, the expert thought, oh, you know, they're obviously taking notes because I'm the expert, they're learning from me, cool, this is really cool. Anyway, so they're at this conference and then they're sitting there and they called up the next speaker and it was this person that was taking notes, the perceived novice, and the expert went, oh, no, what an opportunity missed. Is that ringing bells? Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. And I think that happens all the time. We are quick to... Um, we're not listening, we're mm. not being, and part of that kind of starts to tap into also the Zen master mindset is that you're, you're creating space to take in new knowledge and learn and, and to um, ask questions um, so that you can um, cultivate your curiosity. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of ways to do that. Someone like Andrew Denton's always a, a great example of, and I know you mentioned Andrew Denton in your book, and I thought that was a great example. He is such a master of actively listening, and it's a skill I've certainly been working on with this, yeah. is that you, you've got your questions and you can plan it so you don't... It's live radio, so and, you know, one second sounds like a minute yeah. if there's dead air. Yeah. But at the same time, I want to be able to listen 
to what you're saying so then I'm actively listening, then I can respond. And, and he does that really well. And, and I, I, I studied him a little bit with those techniques that he uses. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I tried to unpack that in the book because, and I use this a lot with clients to talk about when we're going in to do curiosity work, and we're wanting to learn something, how can we do that? And I think he is, and I love that he's back on television because it's amazing watching him in in practice. But to me, there's a couple of things that he does really well. So the first one is all about, he's done his research. He Mm. walks into the room. He knows so much about the person that he's interviewing. Um, The physical positioning, the way that he, he lowers his status or he mirrors the status so he's putting people at ease and he's positioned himself in the chairs so people have got space to look away but look back at him. Um, it's his tone. He's so non-judgmental mm. in the way he asks questions. So at one point, I think he asked Pauline Hanson, you know, most people think you're a racist, but he does it in such a non-judgmental tone that, um, you know, it doesn't provoke hostility or anger. Like it's as though they walk away at the end of the interview as though they were best friends. Um, but he provokes. And even seeing him back on television, he's um, the way he kind of speaks spirals in and he gets those provocative questions at sort of the last moment before he he um, he really goes in for the the hard question goes for the hard question well that's a that's a nice way for us to have a little break that's the end of another stimulating show we hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation picked up some tips learned something new or at the very least feel inspired If you just joined us, you've missed a lot, but the podcast will be available on my social media, Jackie Mitchell. Thank you to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business mindset.